This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Lovely. Yeah, it's lovely to, um, I was going to say it's lovely to be with you all, but I'm not with you all, but um, it's lovely just to be able to connect with you across the ocean um you're the ones that are at Labrie and Southborough, you're a tiny, tiny square. So I can't really see your faces and who you are, but I can just see that you're people. And uh, <laughs> that's about it. So uh and uh thanks to the other people for joining online as well. And yeah, this lecture, it it's um well, I guess it's a, a little bit of a sort of a Jim Paul geek lecture because these are things that I'm interested in and and I suppose it's a it's a spin-off from my book which um Ben said uh about that I that I published just um last month oh no sorry um in actually came out in April in the states what on earth is heaven and um this lecture is a, a sort of spin-off so it's a bit like Netflix series the walking dead or something this is the walking dead 2 or, or whatever uh night of the night of the walking dead or something and this is um but it's it's a, it's a topic that's interested me um because in the book I talk a lot about uh the way that Lewis uses uh his narnia stories to give us an idea of of the new creation and there's a moment where one of the characters as you'll see talks about Plato and I've often wondered how that connects with Lewis's uh ideas about the new creation so this is really a lecture that that explores that and it, it is a bit more I would say it's a little bit more academic than the book is the book's uh written at, at a very sort of accessible uh level and this is a, a, taking it yeah, a little bit deeper into some of those ideas, but I hope you'll enjoy it. And at the end, we'll have time for a Q and A. Um, and please feel free to ask questions about this or other things later. Uh, Joshua told me you were listening to one of my lectures on decision making. And so, so we could have some questions about that. Yeah, yeah. Discussing it. Sorry. Discussing. Okay. Sort of answered the question at the table, but there might be more. (laughs) Might be more. (laughs) Good. Okay. So I'm going to start off reading you a little bit from The Last Battle, and then then we'll go into the lecture. Okay, so here we go. So the Lord Diggory said, listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different. 
as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. His voice stirred everyone like a trumpet as he spoke these words. But when he added under his breath, it's all in Plato, all in Plato, bless me. What do they teach them at these schools? The older ones laughed. It was so exactly like the sort of thing they had heard him say long ago in that other world where his beard was grey instead of golden. He knew why they were laughing and joined in the laugh himself. So this conversation happens in the second to last chapter of C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the final book in the Chronicles Chronicles of Narnia series. And for those who don't know the storyline of this book, or perhaps who haven't read it for a while, um, a false Aslan appears in Narnia and it enslaves the talking animals to their expansionist neighbours, the Calormenes. The children, Eustace and Jill, are summoned from our world to come to the aid of Tyrion, the last king of Narnia. The talking animals who still trust in the true Aslan rally to their king. And in a last battle, uh, they have a last battle against the Calormenes and their evil god Tash. But the true Narnians are slowly defeated and forced through a door into a stable where the Calormenes believe Tash is waiting to devour them. Instead, the talking animals and Jill and Eustace and the other characters find themselves in the company of Diggory and Polly, Peter, Edmund and Lucy, the friends of Narnia from the previous chronicles, who we later find out have been killed in our world in a train crash and also find themselves inside the stable door. And there too is Aslan, the son of the emperor from over the sea, as Lewis describes him, with laughter in his eyes. The children look back through the stable door where they witness the end of Narnia. The sea rises to cover the land, the stars fall from the sky, and finally the sun is extinguished as night falls on Narnia. Finally, Peter shuts the door on the land that both the children and Lewis's readers have come to love so much, and they turn to face the new land that lies before them. Lewis describes it as a a land of warm daylight, the blue sky above them, flowers at their feet. So this is um, the wonderful illustrations by Pauline Baines. This is the illustration of, of the end of Narnia, Night Falls on Narnia. So they turn to this country and Lucy asks, where is this, do you suppose? They begin to walk further in. It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday when we were very, very small, replied the High King Peter. It would have been a very good holiday, said Eustace. I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. Look at the colours. You couldn't get a blue like the blue on those mountains in our world. If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and the big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're rather like mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Yes, so they are, said Peter, only these are bigger. Look there, said Lucy, those hills, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very much like the southern border of Narnia? 
Like, cried Edmund. Why, they're exactly like. And yet they're not alike, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colours on them. And they look further away than I rem remember. And they're, they're, they're more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory. So as these characters see the end of Narnia and then they journey into this land, they gradually realize that this is, is the real Narnia. The mountains and the woods of this country are, as Lucy, as, as Diggory says, more like the real thing because they are, as he explains, in the real Narnia. The old Narnia they saw end was only a shadow or copy of this real Narnia. And all of the old Narnia that mattered is there in this new country, only more itself. And as the characters go further in and higher up into this new country, they meet all the dear creatures that we love from the old Narnia. Reepicheep the mouse, Puddleglum the marsh wiggle, King Caspian, Trumpkin the dwarf, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and Tumnus the fawn, all the characters that we've grown to love from the other stories. They're all there only more themselves than they ever were in the old Narnia. And Lewis writes this, it would be as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. The new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. I love that. I love that. Um, but it, it meant more. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. It had a richness of meaning to it. So it is this realization of this real Narnia that means more that leads the Lord Diggory to comment. It's all in Plato. It's all in Plato. So the question that I want to think about in, in, is this link that Lewis is making between the philosophy of Plato and a Christian understanding of the life of the world to come. I, I could call that heaven, but I hesitate to do that, as you'll see in a moment, that, that heaven, it, I don't think, is the right way to describe the life to come and, and, and not the biblical way to do that. So what I'm asking is, what is it in Plato's philosophy that Diggory, and therefore Lewis, felt would help us think more clearly about the relationship of the old Narnia to the new Narnia, or to put it in Christian theological terms, what is it about Plato that will help us think more clearly about the relationship of cre creation to new creation of, of this life to the life to come? And I especially want to ask this against the background where Plato's philosophy is often spoken of very negatively by evangelical Christians. And often Plato is blamed for introducing what you call a dualistic framework or, or a split in reality into two parts. That, that's a dualism when reality is split into two parts. So often evangelical Christians blame Plato for, for introducing a dualistic framework that has caused a sort of secular spiritual split in the Christian worldview. So 
Lewis seemed to think, though, that Plato had something very positive to to tell us and give us and help us to understand uh, what the life to come, the life that, that Christ promises us when he comes again is, is going to be like. So this is the way I'm going to structure the talk. And there's sort of four parts to it. So um, as the title says, the first thing I want to say is a bit about the professor in the Narnia Chronicles and describe his character and a little bit about what Lewis had in mind in the professor. And then I want to tell you a bit about Plato and some of his philosophy and his ideas. And then thirdly, I'm going to just discuss how um, Plato's ideas were developed by a group of philosophers called the, the Neoplatonists. Uh, who took his ideas, this is a few centuries, moving on a few centuries to after Christ now, and the way that that has affected Christian theology. And finally, I want to finish by exploring where Plato's ideas can help us understand the relationship of creation to new creation, and also where his ideas diverge from the biblical revelation. So that that's roughly the outline of the talk. So first to think about the professor. Um, again, we got Pauline Baines's beautiful uh, illustrations from from the Narnia Chronicles here. So the professor or his full name in the Narnia Chronicles is Professor Diggory Kirk or Lord Diggory, as he's known in, in Narnia. We first meet Diggory as a boy in The Magician's Nephew, written in 1955. Indeed, he is actually the magician's nephew of the title who, through his uncle's magic, travels with his friend Polly to other worlds where he witnesses the creation of Narnia by Aslan's song. It is also he who, through his selfish desire to do what he is warned not to do, reanimates the evil Queen Jadis, who later becomes the White Witch who keeps Narnia always winter but never Christmas in The Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. By the time of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Diggory has become, uh, we're told in The Magician's Nephew, a famous learned man and a great traveller and has moved to the rambling manor house in the country where the four children of that story come to stay as evacuees in wartime London, from wartime London. And it is he that Peter and Lucy consult, and Susan consult when they're worried about their sister Lucy's sanity when she begins to tell them of a land she has discovered at the back of an old wardrobe. With customary logic, the professor convinces them of their sister's sanity. When Peter asks, do you really mean, sir, that there could be other worlds all over the place, just round the corner like that? The professor replies, nothing is more probable. Taking off his spectacles and beginning to polish them, he muttered to himself, I wonder what they do teach them at these schools. Obviously not enough Plato as far as Lewis was concerned. So that's that's the character of, of the professor. And I think it's true to say that, that the same as is true of the character McPhee in, in Lewis's That Hideous Strength. If you know, that's one of his, this part of the last one of the space trilogy. So there's this character called McPhee. But Professor Kirk... Uh, Diggory is modelled in part on C.S. Lewis's own tutor, William Kirkpatrick, who was also affectionately called Kirk or The Knock by Lewis. And Lewis lived with um, uh, William Kirkpatrick for a year while he was preparing uh, for entry to Oxford University. 
And as Lewis describes him in Surprised by Joy, also written in 1955, he said this about uh, his tutor. If ever a man came near to being a pure logical entity, that man was Kirk. The idea that human beings should exercise their vocal organs for any purpose except that of communicating or discovering truth was to him preposterous. The most casual remark was taken as a summons to disputation. And I think in Surprised by Joy, Lewis describes how when he first meets um, his tutor, he says something like, you know, good morning. And then the professor says, you know, is it good? Or something like that. Uh, sorry, Kirk says, is it good? You know, that's the kind of thing that he did was examining every, every the truth claim of everything that Lewis said. So Lewis came to love these intellectual exchanges with Kirk. And it was Kirk who helped Lewis become fluent in ancient Greek to the point, as Lewis writes in Surprised by Joy, I very soon became able to understand a great deal without even mentally translating it. I was beginning to think in Greek. So I'm sure that Plato featured prominently on their reading list and that through Kirk, Lewis became familiar with Plato's philosophy. So now over just to say a little bit about Plato. So that's the professor modelled on um, Lewis's own tutor. And then now to think a bit about Plato. So this is uh, um, a picture of Plato, a fresco painted by Raphael, titled The School of Athens, which is in the Vatican, um, which he painted in the 16th century. Plato lived uh, from 427 to 347 BC before Christ. And he was an Athenian philosopher who many regard as the greatest of the philosophers of ancient Greece. So that the English philosopher of the 20th century, A.N. Whitehead, noted this, which is is a famous saying. The safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. So he's saying really there the, the whole of. The Western philosophical tradition is is just footnotes to the great Plato. Plato was the pupil of Socrates and the mentor of Aristotle and the founder of the academy, as it was called in Athens, that was one of the earliest organized schools of philosophy and it existed there for over 300 years. Now, the central idea, central doctrine of Plato's philosophy is the existence of a primary reality that lies beyond the earthly world of appearances. There is a realm of perfect ideas or forms. Uh, Plato used these two words interchangeably, uh, forms or ideas. And I'm going to stick with the word forms because as as modern Westerners, we immediately think of ideas as things that don't really exist. They just exist in our brains. But Plato's idea of the ideas or the forms was exactly the opposite. The forms were the most real reality from which our world of everyday appearances. So the things we see around ourselves, the the chair we're sitting on, the book we have, all of those things are, are just everyday appearances of the perfect forms that exist in the, in this primary reality. Now, Plato makes an argument for the existence of these forms in several ways, but they were very practical questions that Plato was thinking about. Things like, how should we live? What is a good life? Where do values come from? How should a city be governed? 
Plato reasoned that if we are to choose actions that are good from those that are bad, then we must know what good is apart from any specific circumstance in our lives. You can only say something is good or better or best if there is some absolute standard of goodness which we're measuring it against. And Plato argued the same must be true of all values, like, for example, beauty. And here's a slide illustrating Plato's ideas just using using this concept of beauty. So how can we say that anything is more beautiful or more ugly than another thing unless there is a standard of beauty that we can measure it against? Plato argued there must therefore be something more primary to reality than just the appearances of beauty in the world around us. So Plato saw that for ethics or aesthetics to be meaningful in any real way, there had to be some sort of absolute standard, a perfect form of the good or of the or of beauty against which we could measure specific earthly actions or earthly beauty. And here you see in this diagram, so at the top you have you have the the form of the perfect form of beauty, which is is that's what he would call the idea or the ideal. Sometimes it's called the perfect form that exists. And that is the most real thing. Okay, that that's the important thing. The top is the most real. And then we have the idea or the concept of beauty in the human mind. And then we have individual beautiful objects in our world, beautiful woman, a beautiful vase, the beautiful mountains, the flower. And then we have art, which are imitations of beautiful entities, paintings, photos, etc. And as we'll see, what, what Plato would say is, as I said, that the top level, the form of beauty is the most real. And as you go down, that once you get to the realm of the individual beautiful entities, these are just sort of shadows of that, of that, um, that, that, uh, the real beauty, the form, the perfect form of beauty, shadows projected into our world. And I'll, I'll say a bit more about that in a minute when I, when I tell you about, um, Plato's cave and his, his picture of the cave. So that's one of the arguments that Plato uses that, that, that in order to, f- to say something like, yeah, this is good. This is better. This is best. There must be some perfect form of goodness and the same with beauty. So his second argument for the existence of this world of forms was a more scientific argument. Plato wondered how we can group objects in the world around us into categories unless universal forms of those objects exist. For example, in the phenomenal world, so our world, as it were, of everyday life, there are all kinds of different trees. There are huge oak trees, like the beautiful one in the back garden, the manor house here. And there are miniature bonsai trees. There are evergreen trees and there are deciduous trees. There are trees with blossom and those with none. Trees with fruit and those with cones. How do we know to put all these very different and specific instances of trees together into a category called tree? How can we link them together unless there is some ideal form of a tree that exists? Not a particular appearance of a tree like we experience on Earth but a a universal form of a tree, the essential quality of a tree, the very nature of treeness that gives treeness to all the particular trees that we see around us. 
So that's a second argument for the existence of these perfect forms. And a third related one would be a very important question to the Greeks and very important question to us today from the arena of politics or and sort of social governmental organization. Um, Plato lived at a time when there were all these competing Greek city-states like Athens and Sparta. And his question was, how were these to be governed justly without falling into the autocratic rule of a dictator or the tyranny of the mob? And Plato's answer was, only if there's a higher, eternal and absolute form of justice to which all rulers and mobs must bow can a city-state be ruled properly? So his most famous book, The Republic, is where Plato proposes that a city-state should be ruled by uh, what he called philosopher kings, who through their philosophical meditations come to know and make themselves subject to this higher perfect form of justice. So those are all um, reasons why Plato uh argue there must be this 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 uh, higher reality of the perfect forms of things that we experience here on earth now plato reasoned that if crucial concepts such as goodness beauty truth or justice were to have any real meaning there must exist this primary world of forms within which the essential quality of these things not conceptual abstractions that the human mind creates, but actually as a primary reality that has a quality of being that's higher and more real than the material world around us. So that's quite hard for us to comprehend because we tend to think of perhaps, as I said, like especially if we talked about them as the ideas, that they would be less real. But actually Plato's saying, no, no, they're more real than this world. Otherwise, obviously, they can't give, can't be the source for say goodness or beauty in our world. So these forms are timeless and eternal, immutable, unchanging. They're the highest and deepest meaning of things, things in their very essence. And at some points in his writing, embedded in Greek culture as Plato was, sometimes he described these eternal forms as being manifest in the Greek gods. So for example, Aphrodite was the perfect form of beauty and Athena the perfect form of wisdom and so on. Now, the everyday world of particular objects, so where you're sitting there, wherever you are in, in the States, wherever you are, uh, I can see you in Southborough there, all the objects around you that we experience and we assume to be so real are actually merely imperfect expressions of the fundamental eternal forms. The objects in the material world are derived from these forms and gain their structure and being from them. So we see an earthly tree as a tree because the tree is informed by the eternal form of a tree. We recognize everyday objects as beautiful or an action as good because, and this would be a word Plato would use, because they participate in the eternal form of beauty or goodness. So, and that, that's a very important idea of this, this participatory reality that the things we see on earth say are beautiful because they somehow participate in the absolute form of beauty. And it's actually an idea that you, you, you know, is found in, in the Christian faith as well, where, uh, you would say like when we take communion, for example, uh, we may just be eating bread and drinking wine or grape juice here on earth. 
but we participate in a deeper, richer, fuller reality, the reality of the wedding supper of the, of the lamb, um, something like that. So there's this participatory um, reality that, that, that uh, Plato's talking about. Um, okay, so, so this is the basic structure. So it's, it, it is a dualism between a primary world of eternal forms and a phenomenal world, in other words, the phenomena around us of imperfect expressions of those forms. So as we said, a dualism is this split. So reality is split into these two things. Um, and that is what is often termed platonic dualism. Have I got a, yeah, here we go. So the dualism would be between the ideal perfect cat and the imperfect cats all around us. Uh, <laughs> So the next question to ask as we think about Plato is where are human beings situated in this dualism of reality and appearance? So the reality of the forms, the appearances around us. And this is where Plato, uh, we need to explore Plato's metaphor of the cave, which he describes in the Republic. And you you may be familiar with this. You you might have heard it before. So here's here's a little diagrammatic picture of, of Plato's idea of this cave. So what Plato says, Plato likens humans to prisoners chained to the rear wall of a deep, dark cave so that they can never turn around and look towards the entrance of the cave. Behind them is a fire in front of which objects pass. So in in this case, a bird is passing. Um, But all the prisoner can see are the shadows of those objects projected by the light of the fire on the wall in front of them. So do you get that? So so that the the human us with the the person that's on the um, right hand side there looking at that wall and all they can see is the shadow cast on the wall. Now, these shadows, uh, Plato says, we mistake for the real objects themselves. But it's only if the prisoners are freed from their chains and can turn around and face the light and only when their eyes have become to the Come, become used to the dazzling intensity of that light that they can begin to grasp that there is a deeper, higher, more solid reality behind the shadows that they see on the cave wall. But how are we set free from our chains to be able to do this? So how is it that we're set free to turn around and rather than seeing the shadows, see the real forms themselves? Plato taught that although the knowledge of the eternal forms is implicit in every human soul prior to birth, so we have the knowledge of these forms inside us, this knowledge has been forgotten and lost, and we become enamoured by the shadowy appearances of the forms and enslaved by sensual appetites that make us chase after what are mere illusions, mistaking them for true reality. It is only the philosopher... The, the lover of wisdom, that's what the Greek word means, who by unerring use of reason and the persistent discipline of philosophical reflect, reflection can free himself. And unfortunately, Plato in his time would not have included women in this philosophical task. But anyway, he would have just said this is task for men. They, they must free themselves using reason and the discipline of philosophical reflection. And they can thereby recover a direct knowledge of the eternal forms that lie beyond and above the world. So the philosopher has to train himself to see beyond particulars to universals. Um, 
also to distrust sense perception in favour of illuminated reason. And by doing that can eventually achieve, achieve harmony between their intellect and the higher cosmic order of the forms. Do you get that? So, so it's very much that was what his philosophical task was around. So you, you can think of that with the philosopher kings that I talked about in Plato's Republic. They were the people who were to rule the city states, but through philosophical reflection of, on, on, on the, the, you know, the eternal nature of goodness or beauty or justice, they, they, they could then rediscover this knowledge that sort of lost within them, but, but rediscover it and thereby understand the eternal forms and then put those forms, if you like, into practice as they govern the city. So that, that's Plato's idea of, of the philosopher. So at times Plato sees this process in a very rational sense. Um, and like Pythagoras, um, saw that part of the contemplation of the eternal forms was, was the contemplation of mathematical patterns as being these, these eternal forms. Um, and that, that's why, for example, when it came to a, a, astronomy, um, the Greeks loved circles because they were more perfect than ellipses. And that was one of the great difficulties, actually, with um, astronomy as it went on in time, because the Greeks reasoned a circle was a perfect form and an ellipse wasn't. You know what I mean by ellipse like that shape? Yeah, kind of, you know, um, and and. Um, and, and yet, um, as time went on, uh, and more, uh, uh, saying my internet's unstable. Can you still hear me? I can, yes. Yeah. yeah, good. Okay. Sorry. It's saying my internet's unstable. Uh, so as, yeah, as time went on and people did more astronomical observations, um, and they began to realize, that, you know, they can't move in perfect circles, the planets. Um, but, but people wouldn't leave this idea that no, cause they're perfect. They have to move in circles. And that was part of the, uh, the challenge really with, um, with Galileo actually, who, who proposed they moved in ellipses rather than in, in circles. Anyway, so that's a, that's a, sorry, that's a digression into, into a uh, history of astronomy. But, um, so, um, yeah, so at times this sort of process of enlightenment to reach the forms was very rational, but Plato also often talked about the apprehension of these forms as a mystical rapture and, and coined this term, the beatific vision, the, the vision, if you like, uh, where the philosopher actually beheld the supreme creative principle behind all things. Um, so he talks about it in both these ways. So that's some of what's in Plato, as as the professor would say in Narnia. You know, it's all in Plato, he says. That's some of what's in Plato. But before we think about how Plato's ideas relate to Lewis's theology of creation and new creation, it's worth saying something about um, the Platonist philosophers who came after Plato and combined Plato's, if you like, Plato's philosophy was really a rational, rational philosophy, but they actually combined Plato's philosophy with with uh, mystery religions that were prevalent at the time and turned kind of Plato's dualism of form and matter into a religious dualism between spirit and matter. And I'll tell you a bit about those. So these philosophers uh, in modern times are called the Neoplatonists. 
uh, neo being the Greek word for new, so the new Platonists. And, and they lived in the centuries after Christ, um, mostly in the centuries after Christ. Um, if you read Augustine, he just calls them the Platonists because um, they followed in the tradition of Plato and they only became called the Neoplatonists in late in later kind of history of philosophy. And this is the most famous. Uh, I presume that in real life he did have the end of his nose present. Uh, this is Plotinus, who lived in 204 to 270 AD. And he lived and taught in Alexandria in Roman Egypt, which is one of the key cities in, um, at that time. And, um, he, uh, yeah, he, he grew up in the, in the presence of Christianity. It, it obviously spread throughout North Africa, um, very early on. And, um, so he, he was certainly acquainted with Christians, but Plotinus taught uh, that behind Plato's idea of these forms, was a transcendent godhead or the one he called it so there was there was god the one was behind these forms and the one gave birth to the nous or the divine intellect in which contained these perfect forms and this in turn gives shape to the world of everyday matter now the for plotinus the world of everyday matter, because it is furthest from the divine light of the one, the world that we live in is the world of darkness. It's the world of imperfection, if you like, the world of sin. It is the world of transience and multiplicity. So there's the one and then there's the multiplicity of, of, of the phenomenal world we live in. It's the world of limitation. And in Neoplatonism, it was associated with the principle of evil. So there was this this dualism between the perfect unity of the one and then the multiplicity and evil of of the phenomenal world. And Plotinus taught that human beings are also a dualism of the divine and the earthly. So human beings uh, are a divine soul or a spark from the divine mind, which gets trapped inside a material body. Through the intellect, humans have access to the higher realms of existence and eventually to the one. But only if we are liberated from our bodies and from the imperfections of the material world. So this is um, uh, what Plotinus said. He said, the spiritual quest of the philosopher is to separate yourself from your body and let all else go. And instead of uh, focusing on the body, you, you must pursue the disciplined intellectual life of the soul. Now, this might sound to some of you quite like Christianity, and that's because I'll, I'll say that later on, you know, Plotinus's ideas really influenced some parts of the early church so that Christianity became reinterpreted in a sort of neo-Platonic way. Um, but uh, what Plotinus taught is that is that through a process of sort of purifying ourselves from bodily desires and attachment to our body and through focusing solely on the ascent of the soul and, and the kind of the spiritual inner life the philosopher can be, begin to ascend to uh to gain an understanding of the nous and then finally to transcend all describable knowledge and categories as he's reunited with the one 
in eternal ecstasy. So there's this kind of process. So we're this divine spark that breaks off, gets stuck in a body. And then the philosophical task in a sense is to liberate the soul from the body and from materiality. So, so the soul can return to the one. Now, um, Plotinus taught this path is not accessible to the normal person, to the butcher, the baker or the candlestick maker, but only to the courageous adventurer who journeys into his own soul to rediscover the secret truths long forgotten by ordinary man. So you can see how like many new age ideas and thoughts and um, and even even that thing we, you know, we, we talked today about sort of self-discovery, looking inwards to find my true self. It sort of has roots in this idea of Plotinus. So the key thing um, that what Plotinus had done was not just turn Plato's philosophy into a mystical religion, but also to convert Plato's dualism of form and appearance into a new type of dualism, which was a dualism between spirit and matter. And thereby he created a dualism uh, within the very nature of being human, a human soul trapped in a human body. Do you get that? So there's this, so he's changed this dualism from the perfect forms and the appearances to, to the perfect spirit and the fallen broken matter. And, um, and that's, this is very important because, um, because actually this idea of a dualism between spirit and matter had a very large impact on some parts of the early church. Um, and Plotinus actually shared the same teacher as Origen, who um, was one of the most influential scholars of the early Christian church and, and early Christian theology. St. Augustine, one of the greatest of the church fathers, was a Neoplatonist before he became a Christian. And after his conversion, he still considered Plotinus, one in whom Plato lived again. So Plotinus's ideas actually had a profound effect on some parts of the early church. And you can see that in the way, for example, like um, medieval theology of sexuality is that sexuality is sort of evil itself. It's wrong uh, because it has to do with the body. And if you want to be truly spiritual, you should be celibate um, and constant or, you know, and concentrate just on, on the pure inner life of the soul. And uh, so that kind of idea, it, you see it's filtered from Plotinus into, into the church. Um, later on, actually, um, and, and Schaefer talks about this in, in um, I think, Escape from Reason, um, his books. Uh, Neoplatonic thinking, actually, at the Renaissance had a sort of rebirth uh, through somebody called Marsilio Ficino in Florence. And Lorenzo the Magnificent um was a who uh was a neoplatist and, and he was a, a patron of artists like michelangelo and botticelli so there was this this rebirth of these ideas as as people in the renaissance went back to greek thought okay um so to this day i think platonic and, and particularly the neoplatonic thinking still affects not only christian theology but also more generally the way we think in the western world um for example, so this, sorry, this slide I should have gone to earlier is just showing you this idea of, you know, there's this sort of, we're a soul and a, and a body, these two parts that the spiritual and matter. And when we die, we're released, uh, back to be back into the spiritual. Uh, but this is a slide that I wanted here. Okay. This is a brain and a computer, but, um, 
this is an interesting sort of example of how uh, this this neoplatonic dualism actually is still powerful today because we have this idea that we still think of ourselves even in scientific terms in a sort of dualism between not so much spirit and matter now but but mind and matter and there's this idea that uh, is talked about in in um sort of uh, when people kind of think about the way that science is going that you could for example remove your mind actually from your brain and encode it into a computer and then you could sort of live on in the computer without your body and that's quite a good example there of a sort of modern version almost of neoplatonic neoplatonic dualism okay good i do know this lecture is quite weight quite um yeah quite wordy and weighty but i hope hope you're staying with me so neoplatonic thinking has also affected as i said the christian worldview uh in in some parts and i would say actually even in and evangelicalism you often see a sort of neoplatonic thinking so for example i would argue that an idea of saving souls for heaven is a neoplatonic reduction of the gospel so sometimes we think we're told you know the gospel is about saving souls for heaven as we see the gospel is a lot bigger than that it's actually about saving whole human beings for a new creation um but so that idea that yeah what god is doing is just saving the human soul to go up to heaven to be in this amorphous spiritual cloudscape is a sort of neoplatonic idea okay so let's draw these two threads together then try try and draw the threads of um the professor and plato together so what does plato's philosophy have to do with the real narnia and what does this have to teach us about the new creation that jesus christ will bring to fulfillment when he comes so it's important to remember obviously that that lewis's narnia stories are not an allegory he said that many times they're not an allegory of the christian story in which every literary symbol and character has a direct reference to a to the biblical narrative rather they are what he called a mythopoeia the creation of a mythic story which expresses fundamental truths about our world and lewis and tolkien shared that idea the lord of the rings is the same it's a, a mythopoeia so what lewis is attempting to do in the last battle is to touch our imagination with uh the truth of the gospel of jesus christ and the particular truth in the last battle and the bits that i've read he he's trying to touch our imagination with um is the truth that this world is not all that exists that death is not the end but that a richer deeper fuller life awaits those who trust god's grace the truth that lewis especially wants to communicate and the truth that is in plato as the professor says is that the reality that lies beyond this life is not an otherworldly sort of amorphous spiritual existence in a non-material sphere so so the 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 life that lies beyond this world is not less than this world like that some sort of amorphous pink cloudscape where we float off but that actually the life to come is one in which all the things of the earth that mattered are present only more like the real thing 
because in that world they are the real thing. Do you see that? So, so in this Neoplatonic idea of, of the life to come, our soul floats up to be with, you know, with God in this amorphous spiritual place. But actually what Plato was saying and what Lewis is, is saying is that the Christian, actually the Bible teaches is that the life to come is not sort of less material, less physical, less than this world, but actually more physical deeper more real more meaning than this life and and everything that we experience in this life that we love and that is good and true is beautiful is good and true and beautiful because it's it's actually a shadow or a copy of something in that in that more true more real more meaningful reality to come and this is a truth that many christians need to hear because we we have absorbed a neoplatonic view of heaven and earth in which heaven is often seen as an escape route from the imperfections and sufferings of our physical world and the gospel as prescribing an inner ascent of the soul away from the desires of the physical world and towards a higher disembodied spiritual plane. And often this theology is associated with the idea that that when Jesus comes, he will destroy the entire physical creation and take the souls of those who trusted in him to be with him in heaven. But but that, as we'll see in a minute, is not the story the Bible tells. So I'll take a moment just I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to go very quickly through what what the Bible actually says about the future. And I'll show how that relates to what the professor says and, and Plato. So the Bible tells a very different story rather than an escape from earth to heaven. The Bible is the story actually of the reverse movement. And, and in and in my book, I go much more into this a kind of a biblical theology of heaven and earth. But um Rather than the idea that that through self-discipline, uh, our soul can ascend to heaven, the Bible actually describes the grace-filled descent of heaven to earth and of a perfect heaven to come in grace to an imperfect and broken earth. And this move from heaven to earth actually starts, the left picture is, is uh, I think, Hieronymus Bosch, picture of creation the garden of eden but actually this move from heaven to earth starts it it runs right through the biblical story so the christian story is not the move from earth to heaven but actually the move from heaven to earth and it starts with this perfect garden which is a touching place of heaven and earth it's the place where god's will is done on earth and from where God's will will go out until the whole world is made a heavenly place. And that's the commission that God gives to Adam and Eve to fill and order the earth. Um, but when Adam and Eve choose not to trust God and they eat the fruit that brings death, heaven and earth are pulled apart. And that's, you know, in, this, in the biblical story, the flashing angel that guards the way uh, Adam and Eve are, are thrown out of Eden, out of the place of heaven and earth into a place that is just purely earthly but the solution to the problems of the earth's rebellion are not for human beings to escape to heaven but actually god to bring heaven and earth back together again and he does this through opening doors and um 
I, I, I'm going to have to race through this bit, but, but actually one of the doors that God's open opens is, is immediately that Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. Um, God opens a door because he comes looking for Adam and Eve. You know, it's not that they go looking for God, but he comes looking for them and he, he says, where are you? And they're hiding. And, and he says, where are you? And he's inviting them back into a dialogue and relationship with him. And so this is the movement all the way through the Bible that God opens these doors between heaven and earth, not so people can escape to heaven, but so that heaven can come to earth. Um, and um, actually, I think when you think about it, I would say that all man-made religion is actually the story of man trying to reach heaven or human humanity trying to reach heaven. But the Bible is exactly the reverse. It's a story of God coming looking for us and you see this in all kinds of ways so the middle picture is um william blake's picture of jacob's ladder um and um uh with this vision that jacob has and uh i know led zeppelin in their their song they called it stairway to heaven but actually it should be called a stairway from heaven because when jacob wakes from the dream he says he he puts a big stone um on the ground and he says ah this is where god is present on earth he doesn't say this is how we escape to heaven. He says this is where God is present on earth. And then the next one is the burning bush. Um, Chagall's picture of the burning bush and Moses at the burning bush. Again, you know, Moses takes off his shoes as he approaches because this is holy ground. It's where God is present on earth. And God keeps on doing these, opening these doors. Another one would be the tabernacle and then the temple. It's 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 not places that if you get into the middle of the temple, you can escape to heaven. No, it's actually in the middle of the temple. That's where God is present on earth. And his word goes out from there to transform the lives of the people. And then those people are alike to the nations, to the Gentiles. So so it, it's not that movement, but it's this going down and out. Um, and as you go on in the Bible, we see actually that none of these doors are... Uh, uh, um, an answer to the problem of the human heart and so so um so god opens a final door in the incarnation a door between heaven and earth a place where heaven and earth touch which is in jesus fully god and fully human and Jesus' mission is as um paul tells us in ephesians that the purpose of jesus um this is god's will uh, Paul says in Ephesians, it is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under Christ. So that's fascinating. It doesn't say, you know, and God's will is that the earth should be destroyed and we escape to heaven. No, it's that all things in heaven and on earth are brought together under Christ. That nothing is lost. That everything, if you like, everything that's broken would be redeemed and become its real self. In the, in the terms of, of uh, the Narnia, of what, what Diggory says in Narnia. And this is why, for example, when, when Jesus' disciples say, teach us to pray, he doesn't say pray that you can escape the earth for heaven. He says, pray that God's kingdom should come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that God's kingdom should, the kingdom of heaven should come to earth and his will be done. And and this is um, why Jesus died on the cross. He he died to cleanse uh, the human heart and and the fallen and broken world of sin, so that not so that human souls could live in eternal bliss, 
but so that the holy God could be present in the midst of a sin-infected earth. And even more, that the holy God could live in the hearts of sin-infected people because their hearts have been cleaned by Jesus' death. So that's why Jesus ascended, so he, he could give his spirit to live within us. And so if you are a Christian, then you are a touching place of heaven on earth. You are a place where, yeah, where, where, where actually the kingdom of heaven is present on earth. Um, and you are the first fruits of a new creation at the end of the Bible. When, if we go right through to the, to the, the last, uh, the end of the story that the Bible tells it is not the earth destroyed and we escape to heaven, but actually a new heaven and a new earth that the kingdom of, uh, the city of God comes out of heaven. Revelation 21, this is to be on the earth. And it says, now the dwelling of God is with his people and he will wipe away every tear and there'll be no more mourning or crying or pain. So it's actually this theme of creation renewed by heaven, not creation destroyed, that Lewis picks up in the last battle. Um, It is not the final reality that Revelation 21 describes is not less than this world. It's not an immaterial world of, of pink, fluffy cloudscapes. It is um, a world in which the characters in Narnia, they can run and jump. The, the horses can gallop, the dogs bark. It's a land where there's touch and taste and sight and hugs and kisses and jokes and laughter and forests and waterfalls and mountains. And in the Bible, we see the first fruits of this new creation uh, in, in, in many places. But one is in the healing miracles that Jesus does. And but most fully in the resurrection itself. When the disciples um, see the risen Jesus for the first time, they 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 are afraid he's a ghost. So what they are thinking is sort of in a, they're like thinking they, Neoplatonists weren't around at the, that time, but they were thinking in a sort of Neoplatonic way that the final reality would be this amorphous spirit. But Jesus says, I've got a body. You can feel it. You can touch it. In this picture by Caravaggio, this is doubting Thomas, imagining him actually putting his finger very graphically into Jesus's wound. Um, but, but, but this is, is the reality. Jesus shows the final reality. It's not less than this world. It's more than this world. It's this world completed and more. It's the real thing. Um, and that's what just, just what, um, uh, yeah, that's what, what the Bible, Bible teaches. Um, I'm running out of time. Okay. So, um, let's see. Um, Okay, I'll, I'll just, yeah, let's just see. Um, I want, just want to show you that actually the Bible itself also contains this idea that, that this world is actually just a copy or a shadow of the real things. And that what God is doing is actually is, is if you like bringing the worlds together, uh, the world, the, the, the perfect, you know, eternal world, if you like, and, and, and our earthly world, not, not separating them. And this is from Hebrews where Paul, uh, where, uh, sorry, the writer of the Hebrews is talking about, um, the priests who serve at the temple. And he says they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. I was actually really stunned when I came across those because, I mean, I should have known that C.S. Lewis, when he said, you know, 
the the uh the old Narnia is just a copy and a shadow of the real Narnia that he was quoting scripture. I should have known that, but actually he is quoting this idea in scripture. Um and um it seems that Moses actually saw some of the reality and then and then and then um when he instructed them to build a tabernacle a copy or a shadow uh, here's another example um when christ comes um the priest of the good things that are now already here he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands that is to say is not a part of this creation so this is what lewis is meaning when he's saying you know it's all in plato in a sense it's actually all in the bible but he's drawing these links between these things and here's another verse in colossians which is a really fascinating one where um the colossian christians are being taught by sort of gnostic christians who had this same sort of dualistic split between spirit and matter spirit good and matter bad and they taught all kinds of you know disciplines of the body in order to purify the soul but Paul says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So it's fascinating what he's saying there. He's saying, yeah, again, just teaching us that this idea that the new creation is not less than this world but more than this world, the new creation, the world comes not a shadowy world, but actually this world is a shadow compared to the new creation. And, um, and it's interesting, this idea that the reality is Christ. And I think you see this very clearly. If you think about the Sabbath day, um, because the Sabbath is a day of rest, but Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and I will give you rest. So Jesus actually is the reality of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath day is like a shadow, but the reality is found in Jesus. It is in relationship with him that we rest. Does that make sense? So that, that's how it works. Okay. So I, th- I think this is one of the reasons, this is the main reason why um, Lewis is very you know, positive about Plato and certainly many of the early Christians as well were very positive about Plato's ideas, how they helped them understand some theological concepts. Um, but you could say there were big differences as well. Um, for Plato, um, the perfect forms, uh, were impersonal. They, they were not personal. Um, there was no personal God, no relationship behind it. And the beatific vision of God was something intellectual, not something relational. Um, but um, it's actually in a different direction. I think that um, the Neoplatonists really damaged Christianity. Um, and I think it's mainly in this idea that, that to be truly spiritual you have to disengage from the physical world and concentrate on the inner life of the soul. And we actually see that so much in many, many different forms of Christianity. I've talked about, you know, a very negative view that Christians have to sex. Um, 
even uh, say like negative view to to the arts. Many Christians have, you know, we shouldn't really focus on the arts or on culture at all, but just on spiritual things, which are the, the inner life of the soul. So, and I think it's that emphasis that the Neoplatonists had uh, of of splitting spirit and matter that has actually got into many Christian churches even today. Um, and that's very different from the Christian worldview. Um, when you think in the Christian worldview in Genesis, we're told seven times that the material world is good. And the last time, very good. So um, in, in the Christian worldview, uh, the problem with life is not material nature. That's what the Platonists taught, uh, Neoplatonists. The problem with with being in this world is is that it's material and we have to escape the materiality but actually um in the christian worldview no the problem isn't the material world the, the problem is the human heart that is turned away from god and it, it's that that needs to be changed and redeemed in christ um so as i finish i've just got 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 um two just a couple of yeah, a couple of slides left so in the Christian faith, then, as we finish, there there is no spirit-matter dualism. Spirit and matter are not opposites like they were for the Neoplatonists. The material world is meant to be filled by the spirit of God. And through the work of Christ on the cross, it is being filled and renewed by the spirit of God. Therefore, in the Christian worldview, the spiritual life is not one in which we unattach from the material world, and pursue the disembodied spirituality of the inner life of the soul, the Christian lives his or her spiritual life as an embodied being on a physical earth and in a physical body, because that is what God created us for. So uh, what makes life spiritual is not that it's disengaged from the realm of matter, that's what the Neoplatonists taught, But in the Christian worldview, what makes life spiritual is rather that the power that fills one's embodied life is the life-giving power of God's spirit sent from heaven to earth. And this is a a picture by one of my favorite Japanese artists who converted to Christianity, Sadao Watanabe. This is Pentecost, people receiving the Holy Spirit. And so, yeah, what makes us spiritual? This this is just, I mean, this is the heart of the lecture, I guess, what I wanted to say is, is it's not getting disengaged, escaping the world for some you know spiritual place up there. But actually what makes you spiritual is is in your embodiment in a physical world being filled by the life-giving power of the spirit so that you go then into that world to be a blessing to other people, to bring God's love and God's grace into that world. And I think this is the really, obviously, the good news of the Christian gospel. So Plato was right that there is more meaning to life than just the temporary appearances of the phenomenal world. There is a transcendent reality as well as an imminent one. But the wonder of the gospel is that the transcendent is not just a distant, impersonal absolute. But there is a triune God, but the triune God has entered into the world of appearances. So, again, in the Neoplatonic idea, these parts, you know, they need to be separated. But actually what God is doing is bringing them together. So as John puts it in, in the prologue to his gospel, the word, 
the logos, if you like, the organizing principle. If you're a Platonist, you might say the the creative source of the eternal forms, the word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. So in the gospel, it's fascinating that the eternal becomes historical, the infinite becomes finite, the heavenly becomes earthly, not to negate the material world or take us away from it, but to fill earthly history and earthly action and to fill our ordinary earthly lives with a spiritual significance. Not meaning that we separate again, but actually that, that the spirit, that the loving, caring, gracious spirit of God comes to mend a, a broken world. And the wonderful truth as well of the gospel isn't that this invitation that God offers us is not just for the kind of the intellectual philosopher or the person with enough discipline to to sort of mortify the flesh and pursue the soul but it's actually an offer that God makes to every single human being no matter how dull ignorant talentless or helpless we are it's an offer he makes to all of us Um, it's this hope, I think, that Plato half glimpsed in his philosophy. So he was able to aid the professor as he attempted to grasp the nature of the real Narnia. But it is this hope that Lewis not only learned from Plato, but more so immersed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he wants us to grasp through his story of the last battle. And as he writes, I'll just read you the, the last few words of that book, because they're uh, some of the most beautiful words that I, I've come to love so much that just describe what what actually this new creation, this real Narnia, the new creation is like. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them... It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Okay, so that's the last words of the last battle. Good. Thank you for listening. I'm sorry that's gone on a bit long. But, um, yeah, I'm going to hand over, shall I hand over to you, Joshua? I'll stop sharing. Shall I? Here we go. Okay, great. Uh, well, we can just open it up. Oops, yeah. sorry. I ruined everything. <laughs> um, where are you, Jim? What Stop I sharing. Do? I don't know. You can highlight. Yeah, you can do a pin pin thing. You know? Where are you, though? Oh, this one? And then this one, too? Stop share. Oh, great. Wonderful. I can't hear the chat in the other room. There's only, there's there one. If I was going to say we can open it up to questions in the chat. Nick Brown is going to be listening later. Uh, that's all we have so far. Um, 
But yeah, we can open it up. If anyone here has a question, maybe even coming up to the camera, just so Jim can see your face. I know that's a little funny, but we can also open it up to the uh, 18 or so uh, folks that are, are choosing to tune in. So. Yeah. There's one question in the chat as well. I didn't see that didn't in the chat. That. You want to do it. Sorry? Yeah. If it's directly to you, we can't read. Yeah, we couldn't. The only chat we saw was just someone saying they're oh, okay. going to watch Okay, later. okay, okay. Um, so someone's written, how do you understand Jesus' comments in John 14, 2 to 3? Oh, yeah. So that is in my father's house and many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know, the way to the place where I'm going. That's a good. Yeah, that's a good question. Did you get did you get that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he's talking about. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd actually that, that's a good question. I, I um, I've read bits and pieces about that and I'd have to think about it a bit more um it's interesting that I mean his father's house is the temple isn't it um I think that's what Jesus is is referring to um when he says in my father's house are many rooms um and the temple is this you know I think that the temple is this um meeting place actually of heaven on earth you know the temple is not um is not sort of yeah heaven itself but it's actually this meeting place of of heaven and earth and that was the whole idea of of the temple that it was where it was lo- actually I don't, I don't know if you're aware of that but the whole structure of the temple in um and the tabernacle was based on the garden of eden uh so that uh the garden of eden you you have um the garden uh you have the garden then you have eden and then you have the world and the temple had these three tents the tabernacle had these three tents and the temple these three structures and then for example the uh lampstand uh symbolized uh the tree of life um with its pomegranates on and uh things and then all the fruit in in the garden the pomegranates that were on the uh curtains of the temple so um i think that if you sort of yeah think you know uh imagine jesus saying if you have this idea that the final reality is just heaven then it seems that jesus is saying he'll take us to heaven but i think the temple all the time the father's house is this place where heaven and earth are brought together um and actually you know it's that's the picture we get in revelation the city of god where the temple is coming out of heaven to be on earth and um and uh, it says and then god dwells with his people so i don't know if that helps but i th- i think that's that's part of what what that's talking about but i i definitely need to do some more research and i i think that's a, it's a great question so i will do some more research see if i can say something more next time great any other any yeah over to you uh joshua or ben anyone else or a, uh, this is really weird. I'm going to walk up to this little device here so you can see me, Jim. Okay. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> Good. Hi. Hi, Ben. Yep. Um, well, one one uh, question I had is just I, I far be it for me to ever criticize C.S. Lewis, of course. But, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, <laughs> St. Louis of Oxford. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> 
I wonder whether sometimes Lewis is a little bit more uh, platonic in his thinking that, that I'm comfortable with biblically. And, yeah. I, and I don't, <clears throat> part, part of, maybe this is semantics and how it's spoken about, but the idea that um, the, the perfect ideal, the perfect Narnia, the true Narnia is more real has yeah. very often been, and he certainly develops that in the in the Great Divorce as well. Sort of the yeah. reality yeah. of heaven, more physical yeah. than even we than we are than we experience now here on Earth. Um, yeah. But I, sometimes I think that language is a little bit misleading in terms of, hmm. well, therefore what we see here is not really that. You know, it, it's yeah. by implication, yeah. uh, the physical world that we're engaging with every day is less real and therefore not as significant it doesn't matter too much what we do with it um yeah yeah and uh i know that certainly that's the way that a lot of platonic thinking has kind of infected mm. biblical mm. thinking in the church mm. um mm. and yet in, in a lot of lewis's other writings he would just he doesn't seem to espouse that at all i mean he's very much right. um uh engaged with with um the real the physical world um yeah. i'm just wondering if you can comment on that at all i don't i don't know um yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. That? yeah. 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 I, I think it's in, in, yeah. If we think of him when he says more real, that then this is sort of unreal, then that's a problem, isn't it? You know, that this life is just a sort of illusion or, yeah, um, mist or something. Um, but I, I do, I do think there is a good point that he's making, obviously, because, you know, when you read, um, uh, Colossians, like I just quoted, you know, he says the Sabbath is a shadow or copy. The reality, you know, is, is Christ. And then you can think of other things, for example, like in Ephesians where Paul talks about marriage. Um, he talks about uh, how there's a, a deeper reality to human marriage. So not, not so that, um, human marriage is not real. But there's actually, you know, a bigger, deeper reality to come. And he says that's, you know, that I'm talking about a mystery here. I'm talking about Christ and the church. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think the Bible, it's, it's interesting, actually, that, you know, probably Greek thought, it did have this sense of um, sort of opposites in a sense, you know, it's either real or not real. But I think Hebrew biblical thought has this idea of something can be real, but it can become fuller and deeper and more real. Um, you get that often that you when at the idea of um, like, is it in the Psalms or, it, uh, or yeah, well, um, certainly, yeah, I think it's the Psalms. It talks about, a, you know, like God's blessing is like a cup that is, you know, full to the brim and flowing over. And um, it's something that's really abundant. So the Bible, I think, would have this idea of something can be real, but it can become more real, deeper, more meaningful. Um, I like the way that, um, you know, that the professor said, or I think the professor says, you know, it has more meaning in Narnia. And I, I would say that's actually what what when heaven comes to heaven comes to earth, even in our limited experience, it gives it actually what it does is it doesn't squash the earth but it gives more meaning to things it it makes things richer and deeper um and um it doesn't negate them 
And yeah, I, I could discuss more, more about that, but anyway, maybe let someone else ask a question. Did that answer your question? Are you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, thank you very much. I, I just, uh, yeah. just one very quick follow-up is that it, it yeah. reminds me a bit of the, an idea of, of shalom or goodness in creation. When God says, this is good, this is good, or tov, whatever the word is tov, this is yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, there's a Hebrew understanding of goodness, which isn't static in, in the sense of a Greek yeah. perfection. If it's perfect, then it can't change. It'll become yeah. less perfect. But yeah. Yeah. In, in Genesis, there's, yeah. There's goodness, but then there's room for Adam and Eve to actually change things. Yeah. Or goodness. Um, so yeah. it's a dynamic picture of, rather than a static picture of perfection, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's, I think, yeah, in the Greek thought, you know, it's either perfect and anything that's not perfect is imperfect. You know, that's sort of the opposites. But in, in the, yeah, you're right. In the Bible, there's, there's the idea of it's good, but it, it can grow and become better. And that's why, the whole of God's creation has a dynamic perspective to it. And actually in, in my, in the book uh, that I read, I argue that the new creation also has a dynamic perspective. It's not sort of perfect you know, Jesus comes perfect. Everyone hold their breath. Nobody move because you could make it imperfect again, but it's actually like, no, you know, Jesus comes and all the sin is gone and the human heart is healed and we begin to relate to one another and to God as, and to the creation as we were meant to, but it's still dynamic so that it, it can grow and deepen and, and become more. And, um, one, one of the ways I illustrate this in the book actually is, uh, early on is using this idea of, I use this idea of dimensions and, um, I don't know if you can see the, there you can probably see. So that's like, um, that's like the earth in one sense. It's like a two dimensional world. But when, but, but heaven, when heaven comes, this is the picture down the bottom here. You can imagine that, that actually it's like a third dimension coming, which makes the flat, the flat land, the flat piece of paper into a cube. And then it, the cube is sort of richer and deeper and fuller. And in fact, you know, the fat piece of paper can fit into it an infinite number of times. And I, I think that's the way that we should think of it. Like the, you know, the flat piece of paper is there and it's real. And when the third dimension comes, the 2D is part of the 3D, but so, but the 3D makes it just fuller, you know, more meaning. Um, and, um, and I think that's, that's what, what God is doing. Yeah. So. Good. I hope that helps. I can see um, Darren's got his hand up there. Is he? I do, but I think I saw someone back there that had their hand up first. Oh, okay. Okay. So. Yeah, you should go ahead, Darren. Okay. Yeah, let's do it, Darren. Okay, Darren, you're on. Okay. I I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I'm going to try and articulate it. Okay. I'll try and listen. So, um, just a few things. It seems like uh, we like one of the reasons materiality might be seen as less valuable to the Greeks or to, is that we see as we devalue what we can't, can't rely on to be there for us. So if right. yeah. it decays, if it dies, I mean, this is a big part of the gospel is the defeat of death. Um, and so if, if what is material is bound up with what falls apart and you can't yeah. rely on what falls apart, then you're not going to trust in it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think this is why, like Pythagoras worshipped numbers because you yeah. can build a house that lasts. 
but yeah. if with numbers, but if you don't have numbers, then yeah. it falls apart. And so he worships them and tries to attach his sense of his own eternality to math in order to you know, believe in the immortality of the soul. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I guess, yeah, things that fade are less reliable. Um, yeah. Yeah. And we see as valuable what we believe participates in what is more valuable. So like if, yeah. if all you think of is as, as valuable as money, then you're going to see the world as dollar signs. Like every person is a dollar sign. Um, and so I guess that my question is how, like what, what is, um, how does, how does one think about materiality in a way that um, sees it as a participation in God and what is more valuable Yeah. yeah. Um, without paving over the fact that there's a real problem, that yeah. materiality, like that things fade. That, that the things we care about, we can't rely on because they fall apart. No. Um, just, I don't know if yeah. that makes sense, but. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a good question. I guess, I mean, that's sort of the major question of world religions, isn't it? Is, is to do with, you know, the, the nature of materiality and how we, how we negotiate that. I was thinking of, you know, Buddha. I mean, that really, that's, what what buddhism is all about because you know say buddha you know he, he was the son of he was the prince the son of the king and kept in the you know in the palace to a certain age and then one day he managed to you know walk out into the world and suddenly saw suffering and so he you know how did you, how do you deal with that what do you well, how do you deal with suffering and and think about it i i think the you know in the christian worldview the the really important thing is to start with creation you know rather than i th- i think often we start with sin and the cross you know and and then often then we often start then with a negative view of materiality um but the bible you know it it's it's so unique actually i think in its in 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 its um positivity towards materiality uh, that it, you know, God says seven times the holy number, you know, it's good, this material creation. I mean, that's really sort of banging, banging our heads against the, this fact. Um, and that, that, that was actually totally unique to, um, certainly, yeah, to, to Greek thought, certainly to the Neoplatonic thought and to all the nations, you know, the Babylonians and, um, around there, because in nearly all the myths of, of ancient world, actually the earth, and human beings are produced through conflict. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, in Viking stories and in Mesopotamian ones, the gods, uh, f- you know, usually fight one of them chopped up and then his, you know, his bits of his body become the earth and his blood becomes humans or something like that. You know, those kind of stories. And, but it, it, in, in the, you know, the Genesis narratives, it's, it's this incredible, like purposeful, uh, meaningful, expression of the character and the personhood of god and um and the goodness of god and the love of god in 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 the creation so i I think we should we should start we have to start there you know and and that's why i think it's you know we should be incredibly positive as christians about the material world you know about our bodies about um raising children like i can see you're doing you know um and um and the enjoyment, actually, the right enjoyment of of uh, the physical things. And, and, you know, the other side of it is, is God made us as embodied beings. 
you know, so we like, you know, again, we're not fighting against our bodies. Our, you know, here, actually our bodies are good and we're made to be embodied. Um, and then, yeah, then we have to factor in the fall. And obviously the fall does affect materiality, but it affects a lots of other things as well, doesn't it? It affects obviously the way we, we think and um, our perceptions of the world and all kinds of other things. Yeah. Our, and our relationships, um, which are embodied in our material materiality, but greater than that. Um, so it's true. I, th- I think we do live in this. You know, the, this would be what Paul says, uh, say in Romans eight, you know, we're, we're groaning with creation. I think, and, and I think it's also good to groan. I, I'm getting a bit older. I was 50 a couple of years ago. So I'm beginning to groan a bit more. Uh, and, uh, I couldn't do the, the late nights that you have to do with a, with a small baby anymore. But there's, so I think we, you know, we do live in that sort of tension between those two things, the goodness of it, the beauty of it. And yet also the brokenness and the groaning, but he says we, we're groaning, waiting for liberation. And I think that's the attitude we should have, not, not for the negation of the material, but the liberation of the material. Um, and, um, uh, what's the word he uses? Yeah. And, and actually we're waiting, you know, what in the new creation, we'll, we'll have bodies. That's what Jesus says. Um, resurrection shows and if you say the creed in your church i don't know if you do but in our church when we say the creed you know the apostles creed has a statement i believe in the resurrection of the body so it's always been a very strong christian idea the hope of the embodied and then you know within that then comes this strange sort of christian hope which which i actually believe in very profoundly which uh paul says i think it's in uh, 1 corinthians 15 where he says nothing that you do in Christ is done in vain. And I I think by that, what I take to mean is that everything we do that is within the will of God is eternal. Everything we do in the material world that is within the will of God is a part of eternity. And I also think that even if those things are undone by other people, by evil people or by circumstances, they actually are a part of eternity. And so I, I really look forward to that, you know, the, the art that we make, the relationships that we have, you know, um, the, yeah, even the caring for creation, well, especially the caring for creation that we do is, is actually eternal. Um, and to kind of have that that sort of attitude so i don't know if that's a long answer darren but i hope that yeah i hope that goes somewhere um you know yeah it's it's so important this i'm just thinking about um the whole idea um i don't know if you've seen nancy Pierce's book called love thy body you know really trying to help people to in a, in a way yeah to love materiality that it's not a problem to our spirituality or a problem to our being but actually what we are great uh, yeah good i hope that's i we i could say more on that but i want to does anyone else have uh, there's a uh yeah okay there's someone on the chat said um faith is the substance of things hoped for that's right yeah trusting in things hoped for and and yeah this is the hope that i think the bible lays out so 
Over to you, Ben. Is there anyone? Yeah. So did someone have a hand up in the room or was Darren said? Oh, okay. Here you go. Do you have a question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not super well formed. Let him see your face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but hello. I guess, hello. Yeah. Hi. Um, yeah. But there's this idea in Plato where the forms, the the perfect forms, are accessible within ourselves. Yeah, and there's yeah. an idea in sort of a new age, um, sort of spirituality of yeah. our true self being accessible within ourselves. And yeah. in the gospel, I mean, it talks about the spirit being within us, but it seems like scripture and Jesus, and I guess the way you said, where where heaven meets earth in Jesus, yeah. it's accessible outside of ourselves. Right. Yeah. And this is where the question isn't fully thought out, but I guess, can you, that, that just seems like a pretty different thing where, where, where heaven meets earth is accessible outside of ourselves versus inside of ourselves. Right. Yeah. And do you think that what Plato talked about and some of that new age spirituality of mm-hmm. accessing our true selves are those two things in conflict with one another? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, thank you. That's that's a great question. Yeah, that's so important for thinking. Yeah, thinking about our times today and the times we live in. Um, yeah, I, I, in in one sense, you could say that there is um, something true about a knowledge inside of ourselves. Um, and you could use, for example, evidence from that, say from Ecclesiastes, where the writer says, doesn't he, for God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That would be one example. And then I think another example would be the whole idea that we are all made in the image of God. Um, so that, um, yeah, whether we're Christian or not, you know, uh, sort of defaces and mars and breaks that image, um, we are, it's it's never totally lost. So to use Francis Schaeffer's phrase, we are um, glorious ruins. So we're, you know, we're both the glory created to be and, and, and the ruin of, of, of sin and the fall and our separation from God. So we're glorious ruins. So that it's true that, you know, there is... But there is still, we are still in the image of God and there's, and there's God's common grace at work in the world. And so, for example, Francis Schaeffer would, um, you know, in his apologetics, he would say, when you, when you want to share, um, the Christian faith with people, he said, you don't start with scripture and quoting scripture at them. He says, you, you start with the, the external world and he called it the mannishness of man, by which he meant sort of the experience of being human. So what, what you do is, is you, you begin to build an argument based on, yeah, the way the world is and, and, and the experience of being human. Uh, so, and that kind of wouldn't work, would it? If there wasn't sort of something in us that was still, if you like, a knowledge of, um, yeah, of, of those eternal things. 
But I think the, 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 there's also a key difference, and this would be with New Age and, and with Plato, is, is for Plato and the Neoplatonists, the, the problem is an epistemological problem. So by that, it's a problem of knowledge. So, um, that, yeah, it, it, the, the problem is that, that, yeah, those eternal forms are inside us, but we just don't know it or we've lost the knowledge of it. And I think actually this is true with Buddhism as well, that, you know, it, the epistemological problem is that we see the diversity of everything rather than realizing that everything is one. And so with those ideas goes this idea of enlightenment that, that actually you can receive somehow the true knowledge of the universal, the oneness of all things, um, or of, you know, um, the eternal forms. But the Bible would, would see a, a different problem. I think there are, you know, a, there is an epistemological problem, uh, there, but actually there's a much deeper problem, which is a relational problem that, that, that actually we have, um, broken a relationship with the God who is there. You know, he really is there. He's outside us, you know, and, um, and there is a relationship and a moral problem because we've broken this relationship and then we've harmed one another and harmed ourselves and harmed the world and spoilt it so that the good creation is not what we see around us. Um, and, and so there's, you know, so it's not just a sort of, you know, that, that, that's why theology can't save you. You know, in that sense, you know, you can't be saved by knowing the Westminster Catechism perfectly, you know, and have all the knowledge or whatever it is, you know, that that's helpful and good because actually we need to know who God is truly and, and what the truth is of the world. But actually, it's a relational thing that needs to be healed. And that's what Jesus, you know, that's why, in a sense, yeah, in the in the Bible, as I talked about, God keeps coming relationally to us. You know, he comes relationally to Adam and Eve when they're hiding. And he comes relationally to Jacob and to Moses and then actually then he enters our world um so the eternal forms if you like you know within the yeah within the creative the logos the principle of god becomes particular the universal becomes particular so that we might know him and and then when he ascends he gives us his spirit to live within us as a relationship um with us so so yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your, some of your question, but I think that's the, the deep thing that, yeah, with a new age, you know, as I said, it's not just an epistemological problem of knowing there's, there's a moral and actually beyond that, a relational problem that needs dealing with. Does that make sense? Do you want to come back with a question or? Yeah, that, that is, uh, that's helpful. Um, especially if you're, uh, to, to, to sort of reframe what the problems are, because they're both offering solutions. Yeah. But if you don't yeah. have the problems properly framed, then I guess yeah. the solutions uh, maybe not meaningless, but you get a better reference for them. I guess. Yeah. 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 And I mean, in one sense, you could say, you know, there is a epistemological problem as well, which is why God's, you know, given us his, his revelation in the Bible that, you know, this is going back to Schaefer's, you know, he, he is there and he's not silent. So he's there and he's spoken about reality to us. Um, but 
you know, the revelation when he's not silent is telling us all about how he's restoring this relationship and inviting us into it. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, that's a much sort of deeper thing. I think that's why, you know, for Plato's idea, this idea of the beatific vision, actually, when you see God, you know, you, you, or sorry, see the forms, you know, it's, um, it's a very intellectual thing. And I, I did have a bit of my talk where I, I, I actually talked a bit about when, um, when, um, Eustace, um, sorry, who's in the magician's nephew? Um, Polly and Diggory meet Aslan. And there's this, I'll read you this beautiful bit, which, which sort of describes the difference because what happens is when they meet God, Aslan, um, it's not just an intellectual thing that happens, but a relational thing. And I'll read you this. This is from near the end of Magician's Nephew. It says, all at once, the lion's face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating. And such a sweetness and power rolled over them and over them and entered into them that they felt they, they had never really been happy or wise or good or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always, so that as long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, the thought of all that golden goodness and the feeling that it was still there, quite close, just round some corner or just behind some door, would come back and make them sure, deep down inside, that all was well. And so I, I use that as I, yeah, this illustration of, their beatific vision it's something relational you know that's not just intellectual but it's it's sort of it's reassuring to them in a way that transforms their life and particularly as it says you know the difficulties um that they face but they could be sure deep down inside that all was well so i hope that that's another way of kind of expressing it yeah thank you right good Anybody else? Any any other questions online? You can unmute yourself or oh yeah, there's somebody coming. Hi. Yeah. What's your name? Uh, my name's Tim. Tim. Yes. Tim. Hi Tim. I'm Jim. <laughs> <laughs> um, question is um, you're talking about um, well, Lewis is very imaginatively painting a picture of what hope kind of looks like. The the thing that like was like that's really really fun to look forward to and that's going to really yeah certainly my the readers um the way i interact with my world now kind of in light of like oh goodness this matters so like that's really really impactful um for like gathered church worship particularly with singing it's easy to think and sing in terms of like abstractions and we can talk about you know we'll certainly be singing forever in the presence of god right yeah, yeah. Love endures forever, and there's plenty of room outside of the gathered church context for Christians to creatively portray that hope in a way that can really help our transformation carry yeah. on. My mm-hmm. question is: Do you have any thoughts, ideas about how perhaps in the gathered church context there could be um, things to help Christians kind of imagine the hope mm. that could have been set in front of us? Right. Are you thinking, Tim, about the the gathered church context rather than, say, through sort of writing like Lewis and Tolkien and 
Yeah, um, yeah. primarily, and primarily like, on a Sunday morning context, where yeah. in the songs yeah. that are sung or in the liturgy, etc. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. That that and that's a fascinating question as well. I haven't. Um, it's not something that I've um, thought a lot about. Um, it's. You know, just just to say, I mean, on the other side of it, I think that one of my problems, the, re- the reason actually I wrote my book is because um, when I when I became a Christian and I was seven, when I was 17 and, and a few years later, I remember being on a flight to Warsaw and I was um, I didn't I don't like flying and I was flying on this tiny little propeller plane run by sort of ex-communist airlines. And so I was just imagining the plane crashing and me dying. And I knew that. I was Christian, I'll go to heaven, but I didn't really want to go to heaven. I, I just suddenly realized I, I didn't really want to go there because it seemed so boring. And partly that was because of, you know, what, what you say, Tim, is that it, often in church, you know, the, the images of heaven that I've been given were so insipid. And, um, uh, you know, I discussed this. I, 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 when I did the book launch, I did it. Um, I had Andrew Peterson, you know, the musician on, and, uh, we were talking about, you know, this idea of that we'd be singing forever in heaven. And he talked about what's, what's that chorus goes, I want to sing of your love forever or something like that. And he said, even as a musician, I don't want to sing forever. You know, I maybe want to do some other things as well. And I'm not very good at singing. So it, it, that kind of whole thing didn't appeal to me. And I, I think there's a bit of a, you know, a misnomer there because what, you know, when we think about the idea of praising God forever, we then automatically associate that with a praise and worship in church, you know, and, and, and so heaven or the new creation becomes like just a total, um, you know, a, an endless church service. And I, you know, I can just about do an hour and a half. But, um, you know, an eternal church service just somehow doesn't really do it for me. So, you know, I, 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 that's what started off this book. And I was thinking, well, heaven must be something, you know, there must be something more than that. Um, the new creation and, and I, and I, you know, that the book is really what came from that many, many years later. Um, so, um, I do think that the way we talk about things in church is extremely important. For example, um, you know, I, I do think we should talk about the new creation, not heaven, uh, as, as a, you know, as, as what the future is. Um, we should talk about it, um, yeah, in those terms as the renewed, the redeemed creation and that our lives now are a part of the work of redeeming creation. That's something I, I talk about a lot is the way that, you know, Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. It's, it's not up there. It's here. And we're already participating in the kingdom of heaven now, you know, in a now and not yet way. Um, but there are many things we could do if we realize that it's not a sort of, you know, otherworldly thing, but actually this world, but this world made richer, deeper and fuller. And so maybe you could think of the things that, you know, the normal things of church life or the normal things maybe of life that become, you know, that we can do together that become richer and deeper and fuller and, and more meaningful. Um, um, so, and rather than just limit it into sort of a like praise worship session, 
Um, but somehow I, I would say, you know, what can we do to bring the new creation sort of more into church? Probably do the same things that we do, but more thoughtfully around how can we actually bring the recreating power of God into those things, you know, um, and, um, really, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, you know, I went to a church in London for a while where we used to have a picnic in the summer, um, most Sundays after church. And, uh, there are a lot of kids in that church actually came from a council housing estate, a low income housing estate where the parents would drop the kids off and then go back to bed. And, uh, the kids would come to the picnic and, you know, we'd play cricket or your equivalent would be baseball or whatever, you know, softball in the play cricket in the park with these kids and have a picnic. And, you know, that, that was the new creation, really. I think these kids, many of them without dads experiencing, you know, kind men participating and playing a sport and, um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't want to sort of, yeah, say we need to do things that take us into another worldly out of this reality, but things which bring the heavenly reality into our space, into our time. Um, I don't know if anyone, can anyone else think of other ways of doing that? Um, but Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Sarah, yeah. Hi, Sarah. Hi. <laughs> The tiny face, I can hardly see you, but yeah, hi. You were hi. Right. Um, I, uh, a, a little while back, I read, uh, Michael Fujimura's new book, Art and Faith. Great. And yeah. He's an artist and doing lots of thinking, um, on this question. And one of the things he suggests is that a question we should be asking each other on Sunday is, what did you make this week? Right. And, yeah. uh, yeah. and even just opportunities to, um, to acknowledge the, the work of making that happened, yeah. whether it's yeah. making a meal or making love or making a new song or making, um, yeah, a, a garden or I don't know, yeah. you know, all sorts of, yeah. uh, things that we make and as a, yeah, healing miracles, <laughs> like, um, yeah, so that's something I've been wanting to think more about. Like, what would that look like in a church yeah, context yeah. to offer opportunities for us to both reflect on how we're already participating yeah. in that creative and recreative work that God is doing, and then maybe yeah. even reframing then how what happens on Sunday is is equipping and empowering us for doing yeah. that in the week to come. Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, yeah, that's great. I, I, I think this is an area we've really got to use our imagination, haven't we? And really work at it hard. Um, and I like, I like what the word you've used, which the word I, you know, we thought about a bit earlier, participating, because it's, it's like, you know, how does, what do we do now participate in the fullness of reality? Um, and obviously there are some things, aren't there? There are, some things we do in church, which if you think of baptism or communion, which very obviously do that. And, but I'm sure there are more ways. Um, I know Dar- Darren, you wrote, you know, question mark icons or incense. And I think there are definitely ways in church in which we can sort of bodily enact 
um, you know, the deeper transcendent realities which are coming, you know, coming to earth. I think, I think sometimes, I mean, I, I probably don't understand icons rightly, but something of icons was very much around, I mean, it was around, um, sort of reaching the, you know, into the heavenly reality. But there is something in icons as well, which is sort of the a bit of the distance and the otherworldliness of that. And I wonder if we can think about the sort of actually, like as I said, the whole movement coming this way, you know, and 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 that coming into our earthly and into the normal and the everyday, um, and and how we might do that. And art certainly would be one way. Um, yeah, I, I mean, there are other, many other things. Um, I, I went to a church once where they did, it's, it sounds really crazy, but this is the same church for the kids. Like at Easter time, they did a sort of a passion, you know, did a passion play, I guess. And they had Jesus, um, you know, crucified and then he was put in the tomb and then, um, he escaped out the back of the tomb. This is the actor and the kids didn't see this. And then, the angels rolled away the stone and then the kids could go inside the tomb and look around, you know, and kind of see it was empty. And it was amazing experience actually, as they really entered into that, you know, this, so it is, yeah, but I, you know, there's many, many ways. Yeah. Um, It's so important what we do, not only what we say, but what we do and what we enact in church, isn't it? That's um, is crucial. You, you, Joshua, you're there, yeah. I'm so, yeah, I just want to jump on, uh, one more thought too. We were, our church once did, um, I mean, it's, it's common for, I, for many churches when a missionary comes to town to sort of have them come up front, speak about the work they do and then pray for them and send them and maybe for ordaining a new pastor or, uh, or something or other. But our church did, has done, uh, one where, of course, the pastors know more or less what everyone in the church does with their days. Uh, yeah. believing that, yeah, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker can all participate, uh, in this, this truer reality. Um, uh, so, uh, like having, like blessing and commissioning the work of all the mothers and mm-hmm. all the stay at home dads and who's in, uh, yeah. who's in finance and na- like naming those things liturgically, yeah. right. uh, right. and blessing those things, uh, and not just sort of letting the, the more, uh, spiritual things monopolize, yeah. uh, uh, what, what gets named in the worship and the literature of church. Yeah. Quite a powerful thing for me as someone Great who idea. was in yeah. full-time ministry and didn't get to stand up. Uh, <laughs> just watching everyone else stand <laughs> up. I thought it was quite beautiful. Yeah. But yeah. I think Christina also has a question. Yeah. Right? Just, uh, can I just, uh, I'll just say about that. Just, um, again, you know, I, th- I think that's a very important dynamic, you know, the one that I, talked about is you know from heaven to earth and if if you think about the tabernacle the temple you know it's from heaven god comes to be on earth his word goes out to his people and then they are a light to the gentiles so it's always this sort of downward outward movement and um you know we should think about that as what our church is as well isn't it it's this downward we receive um and and we eat you know we the food that god gives us um as it were the the you know uh, we receive from him the things that we need and then we we go out into the world 
Um, and another, you know, another good resource I was thinking about that I, I'm just reading through at the moment is Trish Warren's The Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's a really great book thinking about how your ordinary every day in one sense can participate in, you know, in, in a deep, in deeper realities. So she has this, uh, you know, the first chapter is called Waking Up. And then the next one's Making the Bed then brushing my teeth and then losing the keys, <laughs> you know, these, all these experiences and just thinking about how they, you know, they can just be earthly experiences or actually we can realize that we participate in deeper realities in these ordinary everyday things of life. It's a, it's a really good book. I recommend it to, to you. Great. Okay. Christina. Christina. Jim. Hi. Hi, Christina. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Yeah. I can hardly see you, but good to see you. Uh, hello. I'm here. Yeah, yeah. Hi, good to see you. We've talked a good bit about the Narnia series. How do you see Lewis working with and playing with these ideas in some of his other works, whether that's Space Trilogy or um, we mentioned The Great Divorce. Can you yeah. speak to any other works where you see him kind of dealing with the same questions? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely The the Great Divorce is a really key book where, um, you know, Lewis expands on on some of these ideas. So those of you who don't know The Great Divorce, it's a, it's a journey that Lewis takes, if you like, in a dream. And he's actually guided by George MacDonald, who was one of the, is a Victorian writer that Lewis loved uh, first around hell and then, and then, and then to heaven. And yeah, there's this beautiful moment where when he gets to heaven, he's barefoot and he can't walk on the grass of heaven because all the individual blades of grass stick up into the bottom of his feet, of his feet. And it's sore to walk. And what he realizes is that, that you know the the new creation if you like is is so more real than he is because he's just come up from from hell that that the blades of grass are so so much more weighty than he is that they actually you know poke and hold hold up his body and poke into his feet but as he goes deeper into heaven it's this journey of becoming more and more real so that's that's a you know that's a it's a fantastic book and one you could read more and more and more um the space trilogy is, uh, yeah, that, that's, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it so much in those terms. Um, the space trilogy is in one sense thinking much more about, um, how the kind of modern scientific worldview or scientific worldview, you could say, has, um, uh, is affecting us and a kind of, yeah, an apology for, um, a deeper meaning to reality, but it does have, I do think in that hideous strength, which is the last one, I don't know if you, you know, those the three in the space trilogy, but the hideous strength is the last one, which is the most sort of unusual of, of the three. And it's, and it's slightly out there with people like Merlin appearing in it and um, all kinds of things going on. But there, there is a sort of almost this moment of, I would say new creation, which happens at the end of the book. Uh, which actually is very much a downwards movement where these, uh, are they called the Oyasa? Is that right? Oyasa or something? The angels, these angel beings, the El, Eldil. Is that right? Eldil? 
He's an he's a Lewis. Anyway, I can't remember what they're anyway, but these angelic beings like come and they really, you know, they, it, it's very much that movement. They come to this place on earth uh, where the characters are and then sort of this power goes out from them and it does begin a sort of recreating work, especially amongst animals. It's interesting. There's this kind of zoo that the baddies have gotten the animals this escape and sort of actually a part of the setting of things right. So that that would certainly have have an idea of new creation. Can anybody think of anything else? I'm I'm um... one thought, Jim. Just just briefly yeah. in, the, in the screw tape letters. Uh, yeah. Screw tape as the sort of demonic character. Yeah. Definitely a Platonist. <laughs> right. Right. Way more Platonic in his thinking than than, than Lewis is, and that and that uh, he's yeah. revolted by. He calls humans a disgusting hybrid, meaning they're they're. Spiritual and physical. Right. Yeah. It's just, it's just a gross idea that God came up with. And, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the, yeah. he even says that the incarnation was one of the reasons why the, their father below separated himself from God. You know, th- this idea right. that God himself, right. his perfect spirit would, would commit yeah. the, the atrocity of taking on a physical form, uh, mm-hmm. is appalling to yeah. him because he has a very hierarchical dualism between spirit and body. And yeah. Uh, yeah, Obviously, that, right. this is the voice that this is a demonic voice speaking. So yeah, yeah. Something yeah. About what Lewis thinks. Yeah. So sort of Satan's horrified that God would actually get his hands dirty and come into a yeah, come into a material world in the incarnation. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, anyone else? I I um I can't think. Um, in uh, in that video, strength the yeah. modern like nice that organization combined with the other one, they're yeah. attempting to create like a transhumanist yeah you know, uh utopia with yeah. a disembodied head. Yeah. As, yeah. as the ideal of yeah. like being able to transcend death. Uh yeah. In, yeah. in the process they're attempting to basically turn the planet into the moon. Um, yeah. You know, so yeah that's so. a very good point, isn't it? That actually you find out, don't you, that there's this character called the head in that hideous strength and they call it and you think it's just like you know like the head teacher or the head but actually it is just the head isn't it of this um criminal actually sort of criminal mastermind that has been executed but they preserved his head and um he's sort of guiding things and that's very platonic isn't it or very neoplatonic the idea that you know like it was like that picture of the computer in the brain that somehow, yeah, you don't need your body. And actually they do talk a, a lot in, in, in the hideous strength about sort of transcending this puny body that we have and, you know, the, this kind of perfect idea of the mind. But then, then you discover it's, it's even interesting that even behind the head is actually, if you like, a, a supernatural demonic forces at work. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's very helpful. So there's a kind of neoplatonic dualism that comes up in in there yeah um yeah i i haven't read like a lot of lewis's poetry and things like that and and some of his kind of you know me, uh, commentaries on medieval works but someone might know more but those are the ones that come to my mind yeah great and how are we doing i'll let you guide time wise ben and joshua but i'm happy to stay online if anyone online has a question of any participants, feel free to 
unmute. And anyone else here? Well, that's everybody here, Jim. Yeah. Okay. They've had their chance. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Jim. Fine. Good. It's a pleasure. Yeah, it's 10 o'clock at night here, so. <laughs> we really appreciate you being willing to, to, uh, to lecture at this hour. And uh, it's just a pleasure to see your face and, and thank you for the discussion time. Yeah, it's been lovely, lovely to join you. And um, I, I could say see your faces, but they're really small. So, um, <laughs> but uh, but I can see some of you, yeah, the, on the on the Zoom. And yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's it's brilliant to um, to be able to share, isn't it? That's one of the good things that's come out of lockdown, where actually we suddenly discovered, oh yeah, we can zoom into each other's branches and talk to each other and uh, hopefully bless each other with ideas. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, would, would you like to just close us in a quick prayer, Jim? Yeah. Yeah, I will do. Thanks. Thanks very much. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you so much for the gospel, the good news that it's, it's the redemption of everything in heaven and on earth. Nothing good is lost. Nothing true is unmade. Nothing beautiful is undone. Uh, but all is redeemed in you. And we pray as we go through this life that, that is like we talked about, it is full of, um, brokenness, not only in the world, but also in ourselves. But we thank you that your power is coming not to destroy or abandon, but to redeem. And we do pray uh, for that in ourselves, in our world. We pray that we could be a part of that here and now, not in, not in our strength, but in uh, the relationship that you offer and the power of your spirit that you offer. Um, help us, especially in our imagination, to see ways that, we can be a part of the kingdom of heaven on earth in very ordinary ways um, and uh, in the ordinariness of our lives and people around us. So we, we ask this, that we could be a part of this new creation now. In fact, that we, we are a part in Christ and we thank you for that. And we give you the, the glory and we pray for your kingdom to come and set all things right. Amen. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Good. See you, Lovely Darren. to see you guys. Yeah. Bye, guys. Bye, Labrie. Bye, Darren. Bye, Sherman <laughs> family. <It's> Susie. <laughs> right.